uh, is we've began last week, uh, we began a, mess, a new message series called uh, The Things That Jesus Never Said. And the purpose of this series is for us to live into the power of what Jesus has said and what we know he said because we find it in God's word. And, and sometimes to investigate that powerful truth, it's good for us to look into what he didn't say uh, so that we can better understand what he did say. And so today we're going to talk about what Jesus didn't say about happiness. And so we're going to look at, at, at that topic and, and just kind of have a fun way of introducing that. Uh, let's, let's look at what Jesus didn't say to start with. He did not say, go into all the world and preach whatever makes you happy. Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, whoever wants to be my disciple must affirm themselves and avoid the cross and follow their own heart. Jesus never said, God is your celestial Santa Claus, so ask and it will be given to you. Jesus didn't say any of these things. But Jesus did say some very important things. And this morning I want us to look at one particular story found in the Gospel of John. And in chapter 8, we find this story that has incredible power and application for everyone uh, that would participate in it and and live into this truth. So at the end of the story, as we share it this morning, we're going to specifically look at things that Jesus didn't say so that we can understand what he did say has the power and the potential to transform our lives. John chapter 8, starting with verse 2, says this. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. So let's just pause here right at this moment because I want you to visualize. It's important for you to understand what's going on in the story. Jesus is in the temple courts. Everything, it's one of the busiest places in town because kind of everything revolves around the temple area in this community. And he sits down and he's teaching the people. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders don't come to just hear what he's saying to hear what he's teaching, all of a sudden they come in and they're dragging this woman that they have caught in the act of adultery. And you can imagine if she's caught, more than likely there's a very good chance that she doesn't have much on. So she's here, this is going to be one of the most humiliating experiences in her life. As she's dragged into the temple courts, the, one of the busiest places But verse 6 tells us this, that the motive for the people that are doing this, these teachers of the law and, and, and the Pharisees, isn't to help the woman. The, the reason that they bring her isn't to, to help hold her account. It's to trap Jesus in order to bring an accusing motive to him. These men don't care about what her or what she's did. They just want to use her as a tool for their benefit to get at Jesus. So they drag this woman caught in the act of adultery before him and say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? 
And this is important here. Because they have put Jesus in what seems, in what appears to the reader in a no-win situation. According to the law of Moses, this woman was guilty as charged. And so she should be put to death by stoning. And it's a trap for two different reasons. First of all, if Jesus agrees to what's going on by Mosaic law, yes, it's, it's true. Yes, go ahead and kill her. Then under under Roman law, he's guilty of murder and inciting a riot. And just as importantly, he loses a reputation for being a teacher that, that is full of, of grace and mercy with those he encounters. On the other hand, if he says it's not that big of a deal, let's just kind of excuse it and make an exception here, then he's breaking the law of Moses and condoning the sin of adultery, which would again discredit him in a different way. And so at the end of verse six, it says this, but Jesus bent down, he stoops over, and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. So they ask him a question, and this is, his first response is to start scribbling in the sand and And lots of people wonder, what did he write? And the simple answer is, we don't know. There's a lot of people that suppose that he started to look up at the people that brought this woman to him and and he starts to list out the things that they have done. Could be. But the story goes on. And it says, when they kept questioning Jesus. So they keep pressing in on Jesus. What are you saying about this, Jesus? What are you saying? And he straightens up and he says to them, let anyone of you who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, Old Testament law instructs those that are witnesses to the act that breaks this Mosaic law to throw the first stone. But Jesus provides a twist to that. He not only is saying this because it says they caught her in the act, but he places this insurmountable burden on these very men who brought her because it, by them stepping forward, by them saying, I'm going to be the one, they're, they're now being put on the gaze of everyone that's watching in the temple courts. And you can imagine it's a small community. A lot of people know what a lot of people do. Jesus is saying, in other words, if I can't write your name down here with anything that you have ever done that displeased God, you get to throw the first stone. Verse 8 says, again, Jesus stooped down. He, he leans over and he begins writing. He takes his gaze off these men and off this woman and he starts writing again in the sand. At this, it says, Those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones left first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And Jesus looks up to her. He straightens up and he asks her, Woman, where are they? Who has no one condemned you? And she responds, No one, sir. And then Jesus said this, neither do I commend you, I mean condemn you. 
And so, so we can look at this story, and it's important here what Jesus didn't say. He, he doesn't say, neither do I condemn you, so go now and do whatever makes you happy. He didn't say, go and follow your own heart, and you do you. He, he didn't say, it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you don't hurt anyone else. Jesus didn't say that. But he did ask, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And this is what Jesus says, neither do I go now and leave your life of sin. It wasn't a condemning statement. It wasn't a judgmental statement, but Jesus isn't dismissing her act either. He's not dismissing the sin. While he acknowledged it, there is mercy here. And yet you can feel the urgency of what he's saying to her. He says, go now, don't wait. Change the way you're living and live a better life. Live one that honors God. You don't have to live in shame anymore. You don't have to live for the things of this world. You don't have to be afraid to live in the, and, and live in darkness. I have set you free. Go now and live differently. Live free from your life of sin. Jesus' words are full of love. They're full of mercy. They're full of grace. And yet they're very much still full of truth. You don't have to be held hostage anymore. You're free to go and live differently. You see, many in this world struggle because they think that their living in sin is inevitable, that, they, that it's, it's something that they can't avoid. And it's not difficult to understand and admit that temptation and, and even in the resulting sin can sometimes look appealing. It wouldn't be a temptation if it looked awful, if it looked like something that was going to hurt us. The temptations seemed pleasurable. I mean, we even see this back in the story of Genesis, that when Eve was presented this temptation, it said that it looked pleasing to the eye. And the thing is that while it can be fun for a little while, the bigger reality is the resulting sin will mess you up. It has consequences. What does temptation do? It promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. Let me say that again. P temptation promises satisfaction. You're going to like it. It's going to be good. It's going to make you feel happy. You're really going to enjoy this. But it does so at the cost of disobedience to God. And the eventual pain that will result, not just to you, but very possibly to those that you love and to others. We don't know how this, or who this woman was. It just says it's a woman that was caught in the act. We don't know how she got here at this point in her life. Odds are that she probably was a decent woman that step by step, st seemingly innocent step, one seemingly innocent decision after another, after another. And now she finds herself in the most public hum publicly humiliated and shamed moment of her life. How did she get there? Temptation promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience, which is sin. 
and eventual pain to yourself. Have you ever wondered why so many of us end up in a similar place in our life at times? I mean, we can talk about the sinful nature and that, we, that, that what Satan has done, but one additional key in that is that we live in a very relativistic uh, culture. They believe that there's no absolute truth. They teach this. We tout this, well, that may be true for you, but that, that, that's not true to me. That's your truth, but I have a different truth. You live your truth, I'll live my truth. And so you just do whatever makes you happy. But there's a fundamental problem with this teaching. There's a fundamental problem with this belief in that without a belief in an absolute truth, then truth is defined by whatever makes me happy. And when the bottom line is my happiness, then my happiness becomes a standard by which I judge my actions. And if it makes me happy, it must be good. If it doesn't make me happy, it must be bad. And if it's bad, you know, if it makes me happy, everyone else is wrong. But yet, this feels so right. For so many, the problem connected to all this is that we think that happiness and holiness are at odds with one another. That deep down, somehow, because of society's distorted view of what Christ represents and he teaches and what God desires in our lives, that we tend to think that you have to choose one or the other. But that if you choose a life of holiness, if you choose a God-honoring life, one that really lives into the understanding of love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, well, then you're destined to be miserable forever. There's this thought that if I really become a dedicated follower of Christ, then I'm never going to have any fun. It, it's going to be misery all the time. If I follow Jesus, that I, I'm just going to be miserable because I'm going to have to give up all these things that are fun in my life. And so we find ourselves at odds with ourselves because while I want to be holy, while I want to honor God in, in my life, and yet I don't want to be unhappy. The problem with that mindset is that where it's, you're operating from looking at happiness as what happens in the wrong place. Your focus is in the wrong place. You're looking at a value that's based on the immediate now, when all along God has designed you for a higher place, for something more. It's based on an eternal view, not just an immediate view. And if you find yourself wondering why you aren't happy living for the things of this world, remember that you were not created for the things of this world. And that's why temptation and sin promises all these things that it never delivers. It promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God. And it eventually will bring death. So let's clear this up this morning. Holiness isn't mutually exclusive of happiness. In fact, a holy God-honoring life based on the power of the cross is the only way to true happiness and joy in your life. They are completely connected. Serving God, living for Him, and not for the things of this world, but for the things that are eternal 
That is the way to true meaning in life. And that's why this woman, this woman that, that was guilty as we are guilty, she was caught in the most shame-filled moment of her life. Jesus didn't look at her and say, I'm embarrassed by your behavior. How dare you? After all I've done for you, and this is the way you choose to live. No, what Jesus said is something, there's so much more for you. Be free. Change the way you are living. Go walk in truth. Leave the lower things of this world, this sin-filled world, and live for things that really matter in life. Live in the freedom that I am giving you. You were condemned and I have set you free. Live in that truth. So what do we do when we face the temptation to do things that will eventually bring pain and sin in our life? Well, this morning I'm here to proclaim that the faithfulness, the goodness, the grace of God is available to each and every one of us. We have a God that is constantly at work. He's done what is needed for all of us to encounter his love and his grace. Paul said it this way, that God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out for you to, so that you can stand up under it. What this means is there is always grace. Grace and the potential for freedom when we lean into living a life that is God-honoring. That every temptation is an invitation to depend on Christ more and more. Every time you feel trapped is an invitation to depend on the grace of Jesus. It's an opportunity for you to recognize that there is a different way to live that brings real joy, not just a temporary satisfaction. He doesn't look down on us and say, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed of you, now go do what you do. No, he says, go and live free because my grace, I have paid the price for you. Now live differently. Live into that freedom. Live into that grace. It's an invitation to lean into Christ and not just our own strength. Jesus is offering a better path for you. And because we are created to walk in this truth, that's where we will find everlasting joy. And so Jesus talks to this woman. He looks at her in the eye and he says, this is an opportunity. You've been walking this way. You've been following this path. Now is an opportunity for you to change the way. Your circumstances were bringing you death. I've given you a second chance. Now your choice is, are you going to continue to live this way and live under that bondage, or are you going to turn your life? Are you going to repent and follow me? Each and every one of us has that choice this morning. And the things that we live into and the truth that we understand and the belief and circumstances we choose each and every day, am I going to put myself on the throne of God or am I going to let God be on the throne. When I choose me, I choose death. I choose pain. I choose sorrow. When I choose the ways of God, it brings happiness. It can bring joy and peace that goes beyond this world's understanding. 
And so this morning I offer you the opportunity. I invite you to join with me in prayer. You see, the, the simple fact is it's as simple as ABC. We must acknowledge A, acknowledge the fact that we are sinful, that we have wronged and stand guilty before God, that we must be, believe in the fact that Jesus died for our sins, see that we must confess our belief in that. And as we ask for forgiveness because of the fact that what we've done, that Jesus is more, that his power of the blood has the power to revolutionize our life. And so we receive that gift that he has offered. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, free from the bondage of sin. That we don't have to live that way anymore. That what was meant to bring us death and pain and, and consequence through your power, through your cross, through your resurrection, Lord, we have been redeemed. We have been made right before you. As we accept that understanding and we put our hope in you, that is the hope we have, Lord. May we receive that gift willingly and live into that truth, live differently, Lord. That we would leave our life of sin where it's all about me and understand that you've called us to something so much more. So much more worthy of living, so much worthy of value, and so much worthy of your praise in what you've done for us each and every day. God, I thank you for this day. May we live into your truth each and every day as we uh, continue, God, in the midst of these quarantines and different things, Lord, we, we ask for grace. We ask for hope that we can share as we encounter why we have the hope that we do. And we are thankful, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. We remind you, uh, invite you to look after one another. Send notes, make phone calls, go, go old-fashioned, even send letters and cards. Um, we, we thank you for your assistance in what you do for us as a church in, in helping meet the needs of this community. We invite you to donate if, if you'd like to. Your tithes and offerings, are, 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 we're doing our best to be faithful stewards of that. Um, there's tremendous need in our community as we reach, uh, reach it in Baker City, Oregon. We thank you. God bless.